story, aren't we? It's probably, in the Christianized world, it's probably the best-known story. And most people could tell you who the key characters are. They could make a list. And I reckon the donkey would be fairly near the top of the list, wouldn't he? And I found a nice one. He's nice, isn't he? Any problem is there's no donkey in the Bible. So I'm afraid it's exit the donkey. Ah, ah, ah. What a shame. (laughs) Although uh, the Christmas carols that we sing have a lot of folk content, don't they? The holly and the ivy and I saw three ships. Uh, But also they contain a lot of the gospel, some amazing statements, particularly those written by Charles Wesley. Born that man may no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. So much of the gospel. Nevertheless, in the midst of the season's activities and festivities, the Christmas story can take on a bit of a folk image, can't it? It gets mixed up with all the other stuff. It's what you do at Christmas. You have a nativity. You go see Father Christmas. You do the other things. So, unfortunately, much of the enormity of what God was doing on that first Christmas uh, can be largely missed. All right. We have the technology, you'll be pleased to know. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. So, let's look at the the, the first scripture. There are going to be a number of scriptures coming up on the screen. I hope you find that helpful. Okay, there's quite a few, so... A little bit easier than, than going through your Bible, but they're there, all right. They're there in your Bible as well as on the screen. But in Matthew's Gospel, we read this. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's God with us, not in just a fairy tale moment. It's God with us now uh, and forever. So much so that the future of this world and its inhabitants are now defined and determined by this truth. Nothing is the same. God has come to earth and absolutely nothing will be the same for the future uh, of this earth. And as we begin to look behind the familiar into the depths of the story recorded in the Bible, when we get behind the human experience, and I think much of the appeal of the Christmas story, it's very human, isn't it? This couple, desperate to find somewhere where that Mary can have the baby, we all kind of identify with that. But when we get behind the human story, we are faced with a profound mystery. A profound mystery. God is revealed as doing something far beyond our human understanding. And... Uh, you know, things are stated, truths are declared and put alongside one another that our rational minds can't grasp. God, man, in one person, no, our minds can't grasp that, can they? But I think the important thing is that should we expect that we understand everything about God and what he does? We, we have a, a God who spoke and the whole universe came into being. Uh, a God who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, everywhere at one time, all these things. And it's not surprising 
that sometimes when we begin to look into God, even look at the things that he's revealed to us, we say it's a mystery. And I think we have a choice of responses. We either say, ah, I reject that, I don't understand it, or we worship God. We fall down and say, this is amazing, this is amazing. It is the angel who announces God's mysterious intentions, first to the key players in the story, and then indirectly to us through the scriptures, so that we would know and understand that our eternal destiny is dependent on us receiving by faith what God accomplished at that first Christmas, what we call the Christmas story. Our eternal destiny is determined by it. So this morning I want to pull back the curtain a little bit and see what's behind the Christmas story. So let me pray first and then we'll, we'll do that. Father, we love it. We love the story. We love the human interest. Lord, we love the intimacy of it and we stand back in wonder. Lord, what we don't understand, we trust. And I pray this morning, Lord, that whatever else, we may just stand in awe and wonder at what you have done, of what you accomplished, which no man could ever conceive, no man could ever imagine. Lord, we bless you and we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to look at three questions. What, how and why? What was God doing at the first Christmas? How did he do it and why did he do it? So, first of all, the what the incarnation, the embodiment of God in human form. What we need to see that the primary purpose of all this is to rescue mankind from the consequences of sin. The Bible says that the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That was Jesus' primary mission. There were other things that we learned through Jesus, but that was his primary mission. The Bible teaches as fact... God became man, and Derek put it in a nice way last Sunday afternoon, God in a body. God in a body. That's what we understand, don't we? Last week, um, Julian introduced us to the subjects of the Trinity. It's not a word we find in the Bible, but although the Bible is very sure of the fact that God is one God, he is nevertheless expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, co-equal and in a perfect loving relationship and yet having different functions. We often think about God is love. You might see a poster up somewhere or you may have something in your house that says God is love. important thing to know is that God is not just love because he's able to love human beings, God is love in himself because there is love in the persons of the Trinity. They love one another. Love is the essence of God. And in the wisdom of God, all three are involved in the incarnation, although it is expressly the Son who becomes a human being. The Father sends the Son. The Holy Spirit is the agent uh, in his involvement with Mary, which we will look at later. There's another scripture that... Uh, Julian used last week. When I was here last week and Julian started to preach and he's putting these scriptures up, I'm thinking, that's what I'm going to use next week. I mean, is he going to preach my sermon? But no, he went off on another tack. I was, oh, wonderful. (laughs) I don't have to do the preparation again. Anyway, the first one. 
from John 1.14. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's something described as the Word. So what, what is the Word? Well, underneath there, you've got the Living Bible translation, and it says, Christ became a human being and lived here on earth among us and was full of loving forgiveness and truth. And some of us have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Heavenly Father. So Christ is referred to as the Word. And we're told at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's an expression of the Trinity. There's a with, they are with one another, he's with God, but there's also a statement that he is as one as God. He, is, he was God. He was in the beginning, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the creator. And again, I think Julian referred to Genesis, where in creating man, God says, let us make man in our own image. Let us. There's a plurality there being expressed, and Jesus is there as the creator, the creator. So the word, if you know in the Greek, it's the word logos, but it's translated word for us. It's the wisdom and the power of the eternal creator God. So it is this wise creating power of God that becomes a human being. We know from the Bible that God professedly expresses himself as spirit. He said, God is a spirit and he fills all things. And naturally, God does not have a body and God doesn't need a body. God fills all things. He doesn't need anything that is material uh, in that way. But we are told that he took one. God took a body. He became united with human nature right from its earliest stage at human conception. In the ancient world, the the thought of God becoming a human being was philosophically unthinkable. People who thought themselves spiritual wanted to downplay the body, to um, uh, emphasise the spirit, Um, no matter what religion they were following, and that was the kind of atmosphere. It was impossible, as far as they were concerned, for deity to inhabit corruptible flesh. And in the early years of Christianity, so ingrained was this, uh, that that the the thought that that Jesus would would come in, in a human body was totally unacceptable. And it became a heresy in the early church. And if you read the letters of John towards the end of the Bible, you will see that he's there defending the fact that actually Christ did become a human being. He became a human being. And John, if you know the story of the disciples, John was probably the closest of all the disciples to Jesus. It said that he leaned on his breast. And John wants to tell us that this, this word, this truth that came to us was flesh. We, we touched him, we held him. Um, He came among us and uh, we knew his presence here among us. And we see that God um, did not uh, in any way despise a human body. Far from despising it, 
in taking human nature, God was proclaiming the essential goodness of his creation and sanctifying flesh and blood. God was not ashamed to be found in human form. In fact, the human form was made in his image anyway. And also we see that God did not habit, inhabit a body just for a season. Some have taught that. Some have taught that Jesus, in receiving the Spirit uh, at his baptism, that's when he became the Son of God. And then just before his crucifixion, uh, the Spirit went back to heaven uh, and there was just left a body. And uh, that's exactly not what the Bible teaches. No, Jesus took his resurrection body to heaven uh, and there is now a glorified body a glorified man in heaven and he's there for us, the Lord Jesus. We must also make it clear that the sun did not come in disguise, perhaps like the Scarlet Pimpernel. You know the story by Baroness Auxey? Uh, you know, if some looking blank, don't know the story of the, <laughs> the Scarlet Pimpernel. It's set in the time of the French Revolution and there were 20 English aristocrats that wanted to rescue their French counterparts from the guillotine. And their leader was called the Scarlet Pimpernel and he went in various disguises. Only the Prince of Wales apparently knew who he was and he would go on, on rescue missions across the Channel to bring these people away from the, the, the French Revolution and the threat uh, of the guillotine. Well, unlike the Scarlet Pimpernel, Christ did not come on his rescue mission as God in disguise. This is not God in disguise. He became one of us. Uh, and in that human humanity, he laughed, he cried, he hoped, he feared, he was tempted, and he suffered and died. He took humanity as his own. Absolutely. Here's a question then. The Son of God, he comes in human form. What happened in the Trinity when the Word became flesh? Think about that. Was the Trinity any less when the Son became a human being? In coming down, did he leave a gap in the Trinity? Was there a sign on his door? Gone to earth back in 33 years. Right? I know it's a bit flippant, but just trying to make a point, really. We're told in the letters to the Hebrews that this son not only made the universe, but he also sustains it by his powerful word. This means that he has sustained it, he is sustaining it, and will continue to sustain it without interruption. It says in Hebrews, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the Son is the eternal, infinite, unchangeable, filling all things, sustaining all things, and in all places at all times. This did not alter with the incarnation. It did not alter. And someone has expressed it like this. Though he became what he was not, he did not cease to be what he was. A bit of a flowery way of putting things, isn't it? Although he became what he was not, he did not cease to be so he did not cease to be what he was. Just think about what this means for a moment. Um, our minds will find it really hard to get round it, but here we have a helpless baby lying in an animal feeding trough. 
and at the same time is upholding the universe. Right? That's, what, that, that's what the Bible teaches. At the same time is upholding the universe. The Bible teaches that Jesus was perfectly God and perfectly man, combining two nations in one without compromising either. If you know the Gospels and the life of Jesus here on earth, there were times when he was conscious of both natures. Uh, At times he was aware of the limitations of being a human being. He said, nobody knows, not even the Son, only the Father knows things. And, uh, And yet on other times he was conscious of being one with the Father. The Father and I are one. And nobody knows the Father but the Son and nobody knows the Son but the Father. This intimacy. Now, we could say, well, has he got two personalities? We call people who've got split personalities schizophrenic, don't we? That's what we say. With people, on the one moment they're they're one thing, and another moment they're, they're something else. But there's nothing, no hint of schizophrenia in Jesus whatsoever. Whatsoever. Only a thoroughly integrated person. If we look at Jesus, he is a perfectly integrated man. And of course, one of the consequences of being both God and man is that he, it qualifies Jesus to be the perfect mediator between man and God. And that's what he's described to be um, later uh, in the New Testament. So let's look at the announcements in the Christmas story um, that herald the wonder of the Incarnation. The angel says to Joseph, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But the angel said to her, this is to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. And then to the shepherds, Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That, that title is to say that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, but he is also God. This word Lord in this case means that he is God. So the doctrine of the incarnation has been under attack from both inside and outside the church. And I've already mentioned in the early days, it was his humanity that was under attack. Today, it's his deity which is under attack, that, that Jesus was indeed God. The incarnation is treated as a myth to be reinterpreted. People say, he was a very good man. That's what you would probably find. Jesus, yes, a very good man, but God, no. And there are those who say that he was a good man, open to God, so obedient that he came to have the value of God to his disciples or for his disciples. In other words, what they're saying is they saw so much of God in Jesus that they they were happy to say that he is God. Now, if he was not God, he certainly wasn't a good man because he was happy to receive worship from his disciples. Uh, And other that would have been blasphemy unless he indeed was God. The scriptures are clear. In Jesus, God was doing his very best for man, not man doing his very best for God. If we set aside the incarnation, then salvation is no longer of God, the God who stoops down, but man who tries to reach up to God. 
And we, we, Janet read this morning from Ephesians that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. As a Christian, to be a Christian is entirely God's work. We can add nothing to it. It's entirely God's work. God has done something that we could not possibly do for ourselves. And so the incarnation is of paramount importance. Let's go to the second. The second point, the how. The virgin birth. Now, Luke tells us about two miraculous births at the beginning of his gospel. And we say a miracle is something that that happens outside of what we understand to be natural laws. We have come to uh, investigate and discover that the world in which we live operates according to what we call natural laws, the normal way that things operate. And that would include um, hu- human um, uh, birth uh, and, uh, and reproduction. But what we find here uh, is that there are two miraculous occurrences. One to Elizabeth, and she is Mary's cousin, and she was long past childbearing age. And the other to a young virgin called Mary, uh, who had never had sexual relations. So a miracle because one woman was too old, the other one because she'd never had sexual relations. And both of them are informed about the divine purpose of their sons-to-be by the angel Gabriel. The first child is to be known as John the Baptist and he's to be the forerunner and the herald of the second. We know in the gospel stories that John the Baptist came to prepare the way uh, for Jesus. Uh, And the second one, the second child, is announced in unmistakable terms and demonstrated in an unmistakable way. Let's see what Matthew 1 says. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then to Mary in in response to her question. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God's creative power that created the universe is now creating a life. And although commonly referred to as the virgin birth, what we're actually looking at is virginal conception because the birth of Jesus was no different from you or I. There was nothing exceptional about that. It was how life began that was exceptional. Let me just digress here for a moment. Because... Uh, in the conception and birth of Jesus, we get an authoritative heavenly insight into when human life actually starts. Something vitally important when we're considering ethical issues like abortion or embryo uh, experimentation. We see from Matthew's account that the incarnation didn't start suddenly uh, in the stable. It happened six months before. And uh, in her pregnancy, Mary was carrying the embryonic Emmanuel, the God with us. At that moment, when the Holy Spirit came upon her, that's when the life of Jesus began. And how did the incarnate Son of God start his earthly life? As a fertilised egg. 
just as we did. And the writer to the Hebrews confirms and affirms that he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way. Yes, his conception was different from ours in the sense that it occurred without any human involvement, yet it demonstrates that the conception remains a common start of all human life. His was supernatural, ours is natural. And I believe that gives us some insight into this ethical issue which people often argue. People are saying, when did life begin? You know, was it, was it uh, when the egg was fertilised? Was it so many weeks later? Is it a fetus? Is it a child? I believe the Bible gives us an insight into it and uh, it will help us, hopefully, uh, to make so often very difficult decisions about those issues. Anyway, back to the story. What we see in the angel's statements to Joseph and Mary is how God accomplished what human minds couldn't possibly conceive, his incarnation resulting in one being, fully God and fully man. Now, the virgin birth, just like the incarnation, is ridiculed outside the church uh, and it's contested and disputed inside the church. People outside who may be quite sympathetic to the church, may even be churchgoers and so on, may even call themselves Christian. When you talk about the virgin birth, they dismiss it, say, no, it's impossible, that sort of thing doesn't happen. I'm happy with all the rest of it, but I'm not happy about the virgin birth because they say it's outside of human experience. But it is. It's a miracle. God was doing a mighty miracle. And uh, so it gets ridiculed from outside. Inside, some theologians consider it only a myth, a theological an interpretation as to who Jesus was and not to be taken literally. Now, our response. what's our response to this? That it's... It is just a myth, a theological interpretation. Well, our response to these interpretations of what it may be will depend on our view of the Bible and its reliability. And Julian helped us greatly last week to give us further confidence in the word of God. But when we talk about the Bible being reliable, we have also to recognise that there are different types of literature in the Bible. There is history, narrative, which is facts of how things happened, There is prophecy, uh, either about what is about to happen at that time or or later on in the the history of the people. And there's also poetry. And you don't treat them the same. But it's very clear. Luke tells us at the beginning of his, his gospel that he carefully researched all these things as the doctor and he would have had no doubt Uh, about the particular details of birth and conception. But we find that um, both Matthew and Luke, they record this story as clear narrative. It is history. It's not recorded as as, uh, poetry or prophecy. It is history. So why is the fact of the virgin birth so important that Christians over the centuries have had to fight to maintain it as a central doctrine of the church? And this is true. We have to fight for it. We have to fight for this central doctrine that Jesus was conceived uh, without human intervention. Well, it's important because without it, we cannot understand the work of Christ uh, and the person of Christ and his work of salvation on our behalf. We cannot understand it. And I hope in a moment you'll see why. So it's not debatable, not negotiable or dispensable but rather foundational, both from a historic point of view 
and also from a theological truth. So what we've considered then already, the incarnation, the how, and the virgin birth, the what, the, sorry, the incarnation, uh, which is the what, and the, the virgin birth, the how. So what about the why? Let's come to the why, which is our, our last section. Why was it necessary for God to become a human being to fulfil his purposes? Well, his main purpose, as we've already stated, was to save us from our sins. And so the issue, the issue is to do with sin. Not, a, not a, a word that people like to use these days, but it was very clear that's what Jesus had come to save us from. The Bible tells us that we're all in the same boat. It says, as, you, as we might say, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And because of this, all mankind is under God's righteous judgment. Now I think when we come to consider this, in our hearts, if we knew, if we knew that we had to face Almighty God, Holy God tomorrow, we would know that we could not face him free from accusation, and free from his judgment. We would know that in our hearts. We know that we've not done all the things that we should. We know that we would be found guilty. And even if by some gigantic effort on our part, we could possibly, from this moment on, live without sin, what about our past? What do we do about the past? What do we do about those regrets, those things that that we've done or said or thought that we're ashamed of? How do we deal with those things? How do we face God uh, in the light of those? Well, the Bible says something quite grave. The Bible tells us that God is just and holy and must punish sin. Now, as human beings, we have a sense of justice, an acute sense of justice, don't we? We know when we've been treated unjustly uh, and and our, our hackles can rise over it. And I, I've said it before, but I have pictures of people on the, on the news coming out of the law courts and maybe their, their loved one was killed by a, 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 drink, uh, a drunk driver uh, and they're coming out and they're saying, he's only got, only got six months and we've lost our husband and father. And, uh, and they think, we didn't get justice. We didn't get justice. And in our hearts, we know that wrongdoing needs to be punished. We expect that criminals are caught, captured, whatever it is, and they are punished for their wrongdoing. And God is no no different. We would expect the God of the universe to be absolutely just. Uh, And for us, where necessary, to be vindicated in the future, where we've been wronged. We want God to exercise his justice. So the Bible tells us that God is just and holy and must punish sin. But it also tells us that it's given to men once to die and then to face judgment. That is the thing that is certain for all people. We die only once and we have to face God's judgment. But also we find that the Bible tells us that God is also loving and merciful and does not want to punish us. The Bible said God is patient with you, not willing that that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's heart to us. But we we still remember that God is just. And if I can say it reverently, it almost seems that God has a problem. He is just and holy. He must punish sin. On the other hand, he is loving and merciful 
and wants, wants to, to, to forgive us and, and to free us from sin and not punish us. I've just thought, if God could find a person, kind of person without sin, right, who would take our place and God would punish that person for our sins and that this absolutely satisfied God's justice so that because our sin was punished in somebody else, he could not punish us for it. That would be good, wouldn't it? If God could find such a person. But of course, there isn't anybody without sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that's exactly what God did in Jesus. And we find God's answer in Jesus. God, in Jesus, provided a substitute to take the punishment we deserve and enable us to be counted righteous. And this is why Jesus had to be born in the way that he was, without sin. Let's have a look at a scripture from Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, we all know that we cannot attain this holy standard that God requires of us. We have fallen short of his glory. And no matter what we do, We can't drag ourselves up by our bootstraps, can we? We can't attain that. We are powerless. But when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we are dealing with people, we say, straighten yourself out and we'll see what we can do. God says, I'll show you what I can do uh, and come to me and then I'll help you straighten yourself out. I want to give you a little illustration which um, some of you will have seen before but it's worth repeating to understand how it is how is it that Jesus is God's answer to this dilemma that on the one hand uh, he is uh, just and holy on the other hand he is loving and merciful and doesn't want to punish us and it goes like this if we imagine that this is my life Here, this hand represents my life. And this book is a record of every sin I've ever committed, thought in thought, word and deed. It's all there, it's all recorded. And there it is on my life, and I can't do anything about it. I can't can't shift that. I I can't erase that stain on my life. And imagine this hand represents God. And the Bible says, your sin has separated you from your God. And that's that's how we are naturally. We are separated from God because of our sin. And yet we have heard this morning, and in this wonderful Christmas story, that God himself became a human being in the person of Jesus and lived alongside us. But the difference is he had no sin. He has no sin of his own. And the Bible tells us in the, the book of Isaiah, and it come up on the screen, it, it says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That means we've all done our own thing. We've all rebelled against God. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah was foretelling God's suffering servant 600 years before it happened, but the one who would come and take the sins of the people. And what this says is that, that, that the 
Because of our sin, God placed that onto Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So our sin is now placed on Jesus and it's no longer on us. That's past, present and future sin. It's no longer on us. The way to God is open. My sin is now not a block to me. And Jesus, who knew no sin, has now become sin. And that next scripture said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. There is an amazing divine exchange that's taken place here. There's a divine exchange that's taken place that my sin has been imputed to Jesus. It's been put to his account and his righteousness has been put to my account. Who got the best deal? We did, didn't we? Get the best deal, get rid of our sin and receive God's righteousness. And we find that God accepted that that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And Jesus, almost his last breath, said, it is finished. I've done the job. I've completed the work that I've come to do. Salvation is complete. According to his divine wisdom, God chose to come in a person. In order to rescue us, God needed a man, a perfect man, in every way like us, but without sin. The answer, a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman. We're sinners because we inherit the nature of Adam. And that's part of our nature now. We are sons of Adam. No ordinary man could stand in our place. God had to break the line of Adam uh, and he did it by coming himself in the person of Christ. The next scripture from 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God came and did it completely. God just didn't organise it. He came and became the sacrifice and he took the punishment that was due to us. The wrath of God was turned away from us uh, onto the Lord Jesus. And it says, not counting men's sins against them. Jesus is now the head of a new race and those who believe and trust in him not only have their sins forgiven, but they are also children of this new race. We are no longer in Adam. We're no longer sons of Adam. We are now in Christ. Paul says, if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We're part of a new race that is now in Adam. So just a scripture to finish. Back to John chapter 1. This is speaking about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own. He came to the Jewish people. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We become those who are born again into uh, the, the new race of Jesus through faith in him. People did not receive Jesus when he came, but the opportunity to receive Jesus 
still remains open. As many as received him, as many as believed on his name, as many as believed that God actually sent his son into the world and to become a human being and to die in our place and to take our sin upon himself, to believe that and to trust that, God causes a, a miracle to take place in our lives. And all we have to do is to receive it. It's a gift. We give gifts at Christmas, don't we? Gifts have to be received. God is offering us eternal life through the person of Jesus. And he said, will you receive it? Will you receive this Jesus today? As all, all who received him, to those he gave the right to become God's children. I'm going to pray. And if you've never received Jesus yourself, you can do that right now, right at this moment. You can say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and I believe that you went to the cross for me. I believe that you took my sin upon yourself and through faith in you, I can be claimed as righteous. I can be justified in God's sight purely by receiving the gift. So let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the miracle of Christmas. Thank you that you had a plan from the foundation of the world to save people like me. Lord, thank you that you knew how to deal with my sin. Lord, you knew how to satisfy your holy righteousness and yet express your love to me in such wonderful terms, giving your all for me. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your Son and my Saviour, that he took my sin upon himself and now through faith in him, I can become your child. I can receive the gift, the free gift of eternal life. Lord, thank you that it is a free gift. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't deserve it in any way. And Lord, I humble myself before you. Lord, and I say, Lord, I say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Come now, right in, take over my life. Be in charge of my life this morning, I pray. Lord, I pray this in the confidence that you will do what you have promised. Lord, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, please tell somebody, please tell me. Uh, we'd love to share more with you about what you've done. Otherwise, God bless you, and it's time for, for refreshments, tea, coffee, whatever. <laughs>